Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. How the pieces on the chessboard are rearranged um, after his death is one of the basic questions in terms of, okay, well, will Renamo turn into an effective political party or will it just continue to be this sort of half-violent, ragtag uh, group of former soldiers? Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 46, where I come back from vacation. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured, or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author Rowan Moore Garrity about his book, Go Tell the Crocodiles, Chasing Prosperity in Mozambique. Rowan Moore Garrity is a journalist in New York. His writing has appeared in outlets including The Guardian, The Atlantic, and Foreign Policy, and is a longtime contributor to NPR. The author of Go Tell the Crocodiles, he studied anthropology at Columbia University and was a Fulbright Fellow in Mozambique. Note that the, this conversation was so amazing, I decided to do something I haven't done in a while, and I made it a two-parter. Be sure and stay tuned for part two out in a few weeks. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. This is your host, John Manaster. I hope everyone is enjoying themselves today. I am very lucky to be joined by Rowan Moore Garrity this, uh, I guess, this morning still. And uh, we're going to talk about his book, Go Tell the Crocodiles, Chasing Prosperity in Mozambique, uh, which is a great title, and it's a great book. So hello, Rowan, and welcome to the program. Hi, John. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Glad to have you. How are you doing? Good. Yeah? Just staying cold in Albany. <laughs> Trying to I know your yeah, game. enjoy the changing of the seasons. Fair. Fair. Well, this book was uh, really interesting. I, I actually knew basically nothing about Mozambique. Uh, beforehand, and I feel like after reading it, I know a great deal. Um, you really managed to split apart so many different aspects of the country into all these different chapters, and and really provide a, uh, an interesting background on them. So, you know, maybe just start off by talking about what what the book is all about. Summarize it for us. Sure. Well, it's funny writing a book in 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 a way is the the inverse of that experience where. You know, you read a book about a place and you feel like you know a lot and you write a book about a place and you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> mm. um, but I'd say the, the book is kind of a look at a, at a young country uh, that is um, very poor and that has had a really rapid period of economic growth that hasn't um, brought a lot of concrete benefits to its people. And so it's kind of a look at how power works from, you know, seen from the ground up. You know, if you're 
someone who lives in the countryside and makes a living as a farmer. And, you know, you don't quite understand how the land tenure system, except that you're kind of locked in this pitched battle with a Portuguese cotton company, or you don't quite understand how elections, you know, why it is uh, that the ruling party seems to have quite such a grip on elections. There are all kinds of ways that people explain the circumstances of their lives to themselves and all kinds of ingenious solutions they come up with to try to find a working, you know, a workaround, to try to make a living, to try to have some voice in society where the deck is kind of, the deck is kind of stacked against them. And so um, I wanted to look at um, how people make sense of that, uh, you know, that kind of an environment where institutions are fragile and weak. And um, oftentimes it's just really hard to get a fair shake. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that I think you mentioned in early in the book that it's it's one of it's this it's a story of those hustles essentially the, those people and how, and how they try and deal with that situation. So yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Uh, before we get into the book itself, I always like to talk a bit about the creative process, just to see because everyone's kind of different and interesting in their own way. So and, and especially the way that this book is written, I'm really curious about just to start off with, what was your writing process? I mean, how did you decide that this was a book you wanted to write and how did you put it all together? So I had the rare luxury of um, doing a lot of undirected reporting for this book, um, which is to say I went to Mozambique on a one-year fellowship uh, originally for a research project that did not quite pan out and um, started, you know, doing a variety of other stories, but also just started doing a lot of reporting that never found another home. And so um, I only decided to turn it into a book kind of well after I got back and was trying to make sense of whether there was a unifying theme and exactly what it was and how my sort of impressions of Mozambique and of the kind of stories it tells about power and, you know, social organization and stuff, um, fit together. But, uh, you know, you begin, you begin with the blank page, I suppose. I I like to, and I find that, um, it's really helpful to, um, try to expand on my notes as much as possible while I'm still in the field. So, um, there's a chapter in that's sort of built around my following this opposition politician around the countryside for a week. And he's a really colorful character. He was a former, uh, sort of militia guerrilla army leader um, and a total megalomaniac. And um, I did a lot of work while I, you know, sort of at night or in the morning when I was with him, just trying to capture everything I could about the scene. Um, Because, you know, no matter how good you are for taking down shorthand or writing notes or sort of, you know, giving yourself these little phrases to evoke a moment, you know, everybody who's ever tried to, um, Catch the real world knows you you just cannot keep up um and so i find even though it's it's hard to have this discipline when you're reporting in a hot place and you're tired and you really just want to be here but it's really great to um kind of you know know, memorialize your impressions of a day or of a of a particular moment as close as possible to it um and often, you know, you write and you rewrite and a lot of that falls to the side. But a lot of that core, that sort of descriptive core, um, you know, survived into the manuscript, you know, because sometimes I'd actually have the experience where you spend, 
you know, two hours trying to write up something and then realize at the end of it, you'd written a better characterization kind of off the cuff, you know, two years earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting and ironic, but I think that's a, it's a, it's, it's interesting, but it's like a psychological thing because we all think that our memory is great. We all think that, you know, in the middle of something we'll be fine and we'll, we'll remember it in two weeks or two months or two years or whatever, but yeah, it definitely substantially degrades over time. Yeah. And it's hard to give yourself a scaffolding, right? Like if we went to something together and then two years later, you said to me, well, they're halfway through, there was that guy then like you saying that guy, you know, maybe we'd had a memorable interaction that might be enough to prompt this cascade of memories that I didn't know I'd held on to, but that I mm -hmm. couldn't have brought up. And then, like you say, you don't know if they're actually accurate. So, yeah. So, I mean, w was that the toughest part or, or what was really the hardest part of, of doing all this? To me, um, I, there are a couple chapters where I really wrestled with structure. Um, I mean, as you see, it's kind of an episodic book uh, in the sense that um, there is this theme of, you know, how is it that a country that is sort of doing so well, according to some indicators, that is growing so fast, that has transitioned from a you know brutal colonial period to a, a very long civil war to sort of a multi-party democracy, um, still isn't really managing to do much for your average citizen. Um, that theme is throughout the book, but, um, you know, you could read chapter seven and I think still get a lot of it uh, without having read chapter four, five and six. Um, and so I had to sort of I think what, what was difficult for me was to find a, a way to sort of articulate that central thread um, not in a heavy-handed way, but in a way that made it felt throughout each chapter. And then, um, you know, killing killing your darlings uh, is always an important part of the writing process. And I had, you know, some chapters where, you know, I shaved off 10,000 words at the end, and you realize, oh, wow, it did work without, you know, without those two or three or four kind of secondary people um, who were mm. important characters or important figures in one telling of the story, but made it more difficult. Um so I think just finding the right insight, and I had a great editor, Mark Favreau at the New Press, um, finding the sort of distance from the text to allow yourself to get that incisive uh, change that you know can restructure something or make it flow chronologically better by you know some kids losing three or thousand three or four thousand words at a clip. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, well, let's let's get into the book because because like you said, this is episodic and there's tons of information and, and lots is lots is uh, th thrown at the reader. And I think in a good way. Um, but it, it just start off with maybe broadly, just talk a bit about the history of Mozambique and and the country for people that maybe have very little information on it. Sure. So um, Mozambique, if you're looking at the continent of Africa and you can picture Madagascar, this little island down off the southeastern coast, if you were to swim to Africa from Madagascar, you'd basically land uh, probably on a quite beautiful Mozambican beach. It's got a coastline that's almost 2,000 miles long. Um, and it's interesting because it's a huge country and it's a country with very little um, infrastructure. And so you know, everywhere there's a Mozambican border, uh, either sort of near Tanzania or near Malawi or near South Africa or near Zimbabwe, um, you find that the Mozambican side really seems to uh, share almost more with 
the sort of people right on the other side of the border than it does with uh, the sort of national, you know, the, the sort of national identity, um, even though I think this, the sense of national identity is quite strong. But um, basically, it's a it's a it's about twice the size of California, um, somewhere between 25 and 30 million people. It was um, colonized uh, very early by the Portuguese. There's actually the oldest European building in the Southern Hemisphere is a tiny little chapel that was built a few years after uh, Vasco da Gama, or I should say a couple decades after Vasco da Gama first landed there in the 1490s. And for hundreds of years, the Portuguese sort of just had a, a, a sort of an exploitative trading relationship, which is to say they didn't, you know, build railroads, they didn't build a school network. And actually into the 1940s and 1950s, they had, a, you know, an approach where they said, oh, the Catholic Church, you guys want to do the school system? You can just do the school system. Um, and a lot of the colonial um, structure in Mozambique, even quite recently, basically existed to protect a couple companies that uh, farmed tobacco and cotton uh, or tea. Um, and the state, you know, would sort of try to enforce these labor codes and try to extract taxes from people, but didn't really have a, a big presence in, uh, in the lives of many, many people. And so um, in 1975, uh, or I should say in the 60s, uh, that's really the, the, excuse me, let me take that again. The national identity of Mozambique really began to form out of a movement uh, for independence. And you had uh, these leftist um, rebels uh, who had their home base in Tanzania, but were Mozambican and sort of started to make incursions into the country. And over a 10-year period, uh, the, the group called themselves the Mozambique Liberation Front for Limo, and, and today they're still the party in power in Mozambique. Um, they started to try to kind of spread this idea of, you know, Mozambicanness and what it means to, to, to you know, to sort of have shared traditions and Portuguese has become the lingua franca, um, but there was this tremendously hopeful period uh, during independence with a, a lot of sort of popular education and civic uh, and health initiatives um, that unfortunately didn't last all that long because very quickly after they won independence, um, there was a, a pretty rough civil war, which we can talk about more. But so independence in 1975, very long period of, of, of guerrilla warfare from basically 1976 or seven to 1992. And so now, you know, it's really only 25 years that Mozambique has been around and able to try to kind of establish an identity, an economy, the institutions of a functional political system and so forth. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and one of the things that you talk about is that, you know, this is, happening all across Africa as well. I mean, there's countless countries sort of that were born over a very recent period, uh, which is just, it, it's, it's very interesting to think about. I mean, it's a, it's a very different experience than we know here in America. Um, so after, after independence, you started to have all these other sort of outside influences. You had, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, people wanted to focus on Mozambique as its own independent entity. So, so what happened once, 
once they sort of entered into the equation? Sure. So one thing that's important to keep in mind about that period is sort of what was going on around Mozambique at that time. So South Africa was still very much in the grip of apartheid. And Zimbabwe, which was then called Rhodesia, had a similar system where basically, you know, you've got white, you know, European settlers, but still running this independent country in this sort of Jim Crow type society. And the idea that you had this successful black Marxist movement that managed to, you know, to have a successful vaccination campaign, as the Mozambican government did very early on, or uh, was building out a school system, that you were going to have this sort of successful leftist, independent uh, African government on your borders, that was terrifying to apartheid leaders. And so um, they began... Uh, that is, the Rhodesians and the South Africans began in various forms to fund uh, the insurgency that sort of animated one side of the Mozambican Civil War. And it took on its own character. But as the war wore on, um, the IMF, the World Bank, and some of these international institutions um, began to see an opportunity in Mozambique's economic situation because war is expensive and it's very destructive. And so um, as the Mozambican economy really ground to a halt during the conflict, um, you know, the sort of Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, and the IMF saw an opening and said, well, if you guys want to embrace a free market economy, if you want to become capitalists instead of Marxists, then maybe we can loan you some money. And you had this series of reforms that were introduced basically in the late 80s and the early 90s, just as the war was um, going down, that essentially just tried to make Mozambique a place that was very friendly to foreign capital. Um, and they did it successfully, uh, but part of the way they did it is by, you know, the same way they've done it all over the world, is by shrinking the size of the civil service. So in many instances, um, really slashing both the number of employees, you know, that work for the National Health Service and or, or the National Education Service, and also slashing salaries. And um, many people see that that see that as a as a major factor in the rise of corruption. Because if you were a doctor in 1991 and you made three or four hundred dollars a month, and then in 1996, thanks to some of these reforms, you made a third of that. Well, you might start to see if your patients can help you out with a little extra money on the side. And so it has remained a country that's very friendly to foreign capital. Um, but one of the central problems that Mozambique faces, and it's not unique to Mozambique, is um, you've had corruption sort of at every level of government in such a way that when you're negotiating with foreign investors, it's not really clear who's advocating for the public here, because somebody within the mining ministry might have some sort of unseemly connections to somebody at the Portuguese construction firm that's building the train or the, you know, you know, Indian coal firm that's building a mine and so forth. And the for people, that's a sort of low information environment. And a lot of that kind of basic dynamic can be traced back to these structural adjustment and free market reforms um, that came in you know, at the end of the war. Yeah, you had a you had a quote I liked. You, you said when talking about the selling life, you wrote, uh, corruption served as a sort of compromise between reality and the law. So maybe talk about 
what life was like for Bento and and kind of what what that meant what that the consequences of all that are for ordinary Mozambicans. Sure. Um, so Bento uh, would actually now be much older at the time I had him um, was a 13 year old uh, boy who had moved to the capital Maputo from a very rural area um, a couple hundred miles north. Um, and he had come at age nine going on 10 and basically sort of joined this Oliver Twist like army of kids that are selling you know, everything from hard-boiled eggs and bread and muffins to clothing and cigarettes and soap and oil and so forth, um, or, you know, in the markets of the city. And there were sort of big parts of his life that should have been illegal, right? So, you know, he's supposed to be in school, according to Mozambican law. There, you know, he's not, there's not really supposed to be any child labor, according to Mozambican law, at least not in non-farming sectors. Um, and, you know, in the capital, most of all, you're not allowed to sell on the sidewalk. And one of the sort of amazing things about watching him navigate the world um, and sort of try to avoid the cops on some days and try to avoid the sort of thuggish older boys uh, on other days is that you saw, um, you know, the rules, the rules of the game, you know, the fact that there shouldn't be any child labor, the fact that they're, you know, he should be in school and so forth. They really didn't apply. Um, and so, you know, those laws are on the books, but he really had to sort of navigate this middle way between, you know, what the law said he should have and like what he was able to go get for himself. And I think I, I use that phrase corruption as a, a, a sort of a compromise between reality and the law, um, talking about there are other areas, like I, I think the example I use in the book is traffic enforcement. Um, where, you know, if you were to stop a car on the streets of Mozambique for any of the sort of various violations that are written down in, Moz in, in sort of uh, Mozambican driving laws, you could find out taillights, you could find too many passengers, no seatbelts, just a gajillion things. You could almost stop every car on the road. And what happens is police do stop many of the cars, but rather than enforcing any one of those myriad um, violations, which would sort of grind the country to a halt, they'll take a bribe. Um, now, that's not a good outcome, but you can see how um, it's sort of a wink and a nod at the law without sort of actually trying to take a hardline approach to some of these violations, um, which are just so out of step with the sort of the state of things that it's hard to imagine how you could go about enforcing all of them. Mm. So maybe it would be helpful now to talk about um, the two major kind of clashing parties. And, and you already briefly mentioned uh, Free Limo, but yeah, maybe talk about the two and their connection to each other. And then and we can start talking about some of the you know people that you interacted with in those groups. Sure. So um, Free Limo, as I mentioned, began as a, a rebel movement trying to bring down the Portuguese colonial government and was very, very idealistic in its early days and very uh, sort of a hardline Marxist. And so when they um, achieved independence, one of the first things, you know, a new country has to do is say, OK, well, what kind of economy are we going to have? And in Mozambique, Ferlimo had the legacy of this sort of Portuguese plantation economy. And one of the defining early choices they made was to say, 
we're going to try to take these, you know, sort of hulking shells of these plantations and turn them into government cooperative farms. And it just did not work. And it didn't work for a variety of reasons. The equipment was sabotaged by the Portuguese as they left. Um, you know, the sort of class of, you know, skilled technicians and so forth that you need to operate those things was sort of, you know, maybe small to begin with and, and not all present in the, in the right places. And um, they created a lot of enemies, I think, among the population by trying to force people to contribute their labor to these state-run farms. And then, you know, they tried to set prices and say, well, you have to go to a state-run store to buy the product of the state-run companies and so forth. And the stores were sort of empty of some of the things they needed and um, people were forced to relocate. And so that drove a lot of animosity um, that the sort of Zimbabwean and South African forces um, were able to exploit in pushing an insurgency in Mozambique. And so what you had when Renamo was formed, that's the opposition party, was this sort of interplay between a Cold War proxy conflict, right, where you've got this leftist government supported at least partly by the USSR and Cuba and so forth, and um, these very hard right capitalist uh, in South Africa and Zimbabwe with some involvement from the US supporting these sort of, you know, insurgents who also have local grievances. And if you fast forward now to the end of the war, um, and I should actually just say one more thing, and the conflict was very localized, right? So you might be fighting about something entirely different um, in an area of Nampula, which is in the north, from what might be the character of the conflict in the south, because the lo local power brokers sort of would turn that bigger uh, conflict to, to their own interest. There are examples um, that I, I cite in the book, like where, you know, you put guns in the hands of everybody and landmines in the hands of everybody. And you have instances where one guy would, you know, set a landmine to keep his brother-in-law from accessing a, a wild beehive that was a rich source of honey, right? And so the sort of tools of war and the language of war um, become, you know, sort of get turned into the service of these very personal local conflicts. But if you fast forward, um, the central problem in Mozambican politics today, I think, is that Frelimo, the party in power, which began as this Marxist movement, still thinks of itself as a Marxist party. And what that means is it thinks of itself as a one-party state. So what you've basically got is a one-party state sort of with the, some of the formal trappings of, of democracy. And on the other side, you have this opposition movement that says, you know, we bled and we fought to bring democracy to Mozambique, right? Because that was the sort of terms of the peace deal was, okay, okay, we're going to hold elections and it'll, you know, it'll be between Renamo and Frelimo. We fought and we bled to bring democracy to Mozambique and therefore we should have access to power. But the opposition has never been able to sort of organize effectively or break some of the sort of institutional advantages that the ruling party for Limo has. And so you have this um, just kind of insane dynamic where, um, you know, everybody goes through the motions, but the elections are of limited value and people are always trying to kind of push at the margins, either by threatening violence or by exploiting positions of power in the state bureaucracy. 
Um, one good example of this is that if you're a teacher or a nurse or you have any job in the civil service, you're expected to vote and you're expected to be a card carrying member of the ruling party. And if you, you know, object to what the ruling party is trying to do, you, you know, are at the risk of losing your livelihood, um, you know, in the public service. Wow. That's a, uh, it's a pretty intense one. Uh, I mean, I just to quickly follow up on that, I mean, how, and, and did you get a sense from people about how they felt about that? I mean, was that taken as normal? Okay. Or were people upset, but they didn't ha really have anywhere to go with that outrage? Yeah. Um, so I think both things are true at once, right? Um, mm. people have, Certainly, it is normal, right? And people have grown used to uh, the idea that uh, all teachers are expected to be, you know, fans of the ruling party or members of the ruling party. Um, but there's also a, you know, tremendous undercurrent of disenchantment and anger and frustration um, against the ruling party, and so you have seen isolated electoral victories by the opposition. Um, it's just, it's never quite gotten to a point where it's more than, you know, occupying city hall and, you know, being the sort of mayor of a smaller town or some of the cities, um, to actually controlling national government where you could imagine some bigger picture changes, but people are very, very disenchanted and, and they're very cynical. And, and, you know, you see this around the world, you know, up to and including the U S I mean, in Georgia right now, we've got the referee of elections in the state running as a, a candidate, uh, you know, gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party. And he said in a debate last night that he wouldn't recuse himself. Uh, he wouldn't necessarily recuse himself if there were a recount. Um, and you see across the country in the U.S. all kinds of examples on both sides to a degree um, of people finding ways to turn incumbency to an advantage. Um, and it's just about how strong are the forces that push back. And in Mozambique, the forces that are able to push back, um, you know, they don't have really big, well-funded, sophisticated civil society groups, right? They don't have a large middle class that has some sense of economic security um, that would allow them to kind of step out and take the time to get into kind of a political dogfight in their backyard. And the consequences can be, um, really scary. I mean, there was this since since I wrote the book, there's been uh, or a, as the book was coming together, there's sort of this campaign of assassinations of prominent people linked to the opposition, not all of them politicians, um, you know, a prominent constitutional law scholar um, who said, well, actually, maybe there is a good way for there to be a power sharing agreement was shot, you know, shot down in the middle of the street while he had his uh, espresso at you know, lunchtime. And so um, that really sends a strong message. And I think there's a huge amount of fear um, that maybe, you know, acts as a break on popular protest and sort of a, a movement for change. Mm. Uh, maybe talk about what it was like to meet and correct my pronunciation if I'm wrong. The Lakama? Okay, yeah. Alfonso Giacama. Giacama. Uh, yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, what was it like meeting him and talking with him and spending time with him and maybe just talk about who he is quickly? Sure. Yeah. So, um, Afonso Jacama actually died, uh, earlier this year. Um, he was, uh, from the late seventies all the way until his death, the leader of Renamo, the main opposition party in Mozambique. And in the first, you know, 15 or 16 years of that, um, he was basically a guerrilla general. Um, and is sort of thought of as a really efficient and savvy tactician. Um, but part of what that meant in the context of that conflict is that this is someone who orchestrated the kidnapping of, you know, many teenage boys and girls who acted as porters and then soldiers, um, someone who orchestrated, you know, burning whole villages and, you know, farmers fields to the ground, uh, whose army, you know, cut off people's breasts and lips and ears and hands and perpetrated some really astoundingly brutal um, acts and um, never really apologized for it um, in a way. I mean, there, there hasn't ever been a, a kind of reckoning with the, the wounds of war. Um, in Mozambique in a way that you've seen in some other countries. Um, but he, uh, he was a very charismatic guy, and, and he became, after 1992 with the peace accords, um, a, a politician. Um, and uh, in, in, in 2011, uh, when I met him, um, he had sort of been on this 20-year run of doing worse and worse and worse in national elections. And he kind of seemed like he might be teetering uh, towards irrelevance. Uh, but the one thing that kind of kept him relevant was he would say, you know, if you guys aren't careful, if Frelimo won't listen to me, I can bring this country to a halt. And so when I went out and tried to meet him, he was just uh, beginning this kind of barnstorming tour throughout northern Mozambique to whip up uh, protests and get people um, out in the street in such a way that it would sort of maybe add a little, le give him a little leverage in negotiating um, with the ruling party about, you know, the rules of elections or how his formal sol his former soldiers would be integrated into the army. Um, but it was a crazy experience because, you know, you kind of shudder when you think about shaking somebody like that hand or spending any time with them. He likes to make jokes. He was talking about, oh, you know, you know, you're from California. He thought Jimmy Carter was from California. He said, you know, he's a left winger, but you know, he was always good to me and I want you to be my English teacher. And he's sort of hamming it up with you as an American journalist, because you're useful to him in a way, right? With his whole posse around, it's a way to sort of signal, hey, look, people are paying attention and whatnot. Um, but we went around in this convoy of seven pickup trucks um, with a number of other uh, politicians from his party. And every day what would happen is you'd wake up and, you know, dozens of people, including, you know, soldiers and these other politicians and a bunch of kind of aides and, and in many cases, a lot of, uh, you know, rural supporters who would come out for him would be waiting there. Just like when is when is they call him his excellency? You know, when is his excellency going to get up? Um, and, you know, I remember one day, I think, waiting until kind of 
11 a.m. when he finally showed up. And then once he'd had his breakfast, he said, well, what are we waiting for? Like, we should have been out of here hours ago. And they said, well, we've been waiting for you, boss. And he said, well, okay, well, hold on. I just want to have a little something to eat. Um, <laughs> and so what was sad and tragic to me about it is, you know, we drive through the countryside and you'd see these very poor um, people who, you know, made a living farming without irrigation, without fertilizer, um, on, you know, small plots of land and who had basically taken, you know, one, two, three useful work days to come and wait for this guy to speak. And I think a huge part of the appeal for them was in a climate of fear, in a climate where, you know, the ruling party has been in power since as long as you can remember, as long as you've had a country, here was somebody who was willing to get up and grab a microphone and denounce all of it, right? And say, yes, you are right to be angry. You are right to be frustrated because Mozambique is a rich country. We've got a lot of timber. We've got mineral resources. We shouldn't be as poor today as we were 20 years ago. And so he had this huge, huge turnout, but he was such an egomaniac um, and so kind of incapable of seeing past his own interest that you just got the sense there was never going to be any um, promising kind of organizing that happened as a political party under his leadership because he was very jealous about his power. And so I don't know how hopeful to be now, but it, we're in an interesting moment because um, Jacama, uh, even as for Limo's presidents and, and people in power changed, Jacama remained at the head of Renamo for 40 years, essentially. And so he was really a towering figure in Mozambican politics and sort of how the pieces on the chessboard are rearranged um, after his death is one of the basic questions in terms of, OK, well, will Renamo turn into an effective political party or will it just continue to be this sort of half violent ragtag uh, group of former soldiers? Mm. So you mentioned while you were traveling that, you know, you'd, you'd be traveling through these kind of rural areas at times. People would come out you know, farmers, and you had a whole chapter on kind of land rights and farming and, and what was happening. I thought that was all pretty interesting. So maybe just talk a bit about the interplay between, you know, corporations, the government, these communities in Mozambique surrounding farming, and sort of the people's rights to land and, and uh, you know, what happened to them as, as the country gained its independence and then, you know, started to maybe lose a little bit of it again. Sure. Um, so uh, this is a group of farmers uh, I wrote, that I wrote about in rural Zambezia, which is a very fertile, very populous province in, in northern Mozambique. And it's just beautiful. The landscape is these sort of rolling hills um, kind of punctuated by these massive granite domes. Um, and so you'll just see this sort of, you know, beautiful, almost like an, kind of an elephant rising above the horizon. This is, you know, you'll be out on a plane and then this sort of big dome will come um, rising out of nowhere. And, you know, there might be a little tuft of trees at the top. But anyhow, it's a very fertile part of the country. And in Mozambique, you know, about 80 percent of people make their living from agriculture. And the vast majority of them are very small farmers who, as I said, don't have access to fertilizer, may not have access to tractors or, or, or even animal traction, you know, horses, cow, you know, uh, oxen and so forth. Um, and so it's really subsistence. Um, 
But I wrote about a, a small group of farmers that was a little bit more successful. They uh, grew soybeans and had formed a cooperative that allowed them to basically um, buy their seed together and share equipment in such a way that they, you know, they were able to sort of use better technology and, you know, have access to more capital and resources so that they could irrigate and, and sort of get a better soybean crop. And, you know, you, you see that they had re-roofed their houses with, you know, steel, they had, you know, sent some of their kids to college and things like this. And um, the story that I focus on is this battle that they've had for years with a Portuguese cotton company that basically says, we own the land that you guys are farming. And the sort of most colorful incident in the book um, is, or in that chapter, is basically one night when they, when this sort of first came to a head for them was they woke up in the middle of the night, this group of farmers, because they heard a giant machine of some kind um, driving through their fields. And they go outside and they see this tractor beam and sure enough, it's a guy who is tilling uh, land that belongs to them. And they start to go, what the heck is going on? And they try to get him to stop and they can't get him to stop. And then by the next morning, um, they realize, oh, boy, this cotton company wants to take our fields and just plant cotton like we weren't even here. And I'm, I'm getting a little bit confused now about the sequence. But um, they, this happened twice, actually. But basically, uh, they decide, all right he brought his tractor out to till this because he thinks his land, well, we're just going to go ahead and thank him for having tilled our land and plant our soybeans anyway, because, you know, we've farmed this land for generations and he can't push us off. Um, and so they do. And there's just this incredible uh, sort of game of chicken that ensues where uh, one year the, the cotton company manages to plant cotton seedlings. And then, you know, the Mozambicans go in and they plant all their soybean seedlings. And then after a few weeks, they go back in and they weed all the cotton seedlings out of their fields. Um, but the, the reason uh, I used this story to kind of tell a larger story about Mozambique is that um, it gets to the heart of land rights and land tenure. So technically speaking, the government owns all the land in Mozambique. And if you're a, a foreign investor or a Portuguese you know, corporation or whatever, and you want access to land for some kind of project, you need to get um, what's called a, a use permit. So that would give you, you know, basically a 50 year lease on the land. And that process has been, um, I guess, very leaky, very problematic in the way that it's been rolled out. Because in theory, you're supposed to go out and ask all the local people, oh, you know, is this really land that you're not using? And is it okay for us to be here? And so on and so forth. Um, and have a community meeting and maybe make promises about infrastructure and that kind of thing. And what happened here, uh, not with these farmers, but with their neighbors who actually did lose their land, is that the cotton company um, basically bought somebody else's use permit and then acted as though it was their own, even though that's totally illegal. And who knows the specifics of the relationship, but you know, through some pull at the level of the local government, we're able to get people to not pay attention. And so um, you had a couple dozen families that were basically kicked off this very fertile land that obviously is good for growing cotton and were made to grow 
on much, much worse land, cassava and corn and the things that they usually grow. And basically, as far as they saw it, they felt they had no recourse because the idea that you would, you know, go to the city as somebody who could, you know, who barely had a fifth or sixth grade education and get the government to kick out this Portuguese company with tractors and pickup trucks and so forth was just totally ludicrous to them. Um, and so it's a good example of, again, this dynamic where on paper you've got a lot of good protections, but when that set of protections sort of um, is held up against the power imbalances that you see um, in rural areas, uh, you know, the, the powerful are able to sort of make things go their way. And I was just really taken with the story of resistance because uh, it showed that with a little bit of foresight and a little bit of collective action and a lot of courage, really, um, the soybean farmers knew they had the law on their side. They knew that they had the right to farm where they had been farming. And so they were basically able by not backing down to say, well, what are you going to do? You're going to try to come after this whole community. And um, and they got uh, they got they got the cotton company to back down. Wow. Victory for the little guys. Absolutely. Huh. Uh, so you, another chapter you had, to, and again, these are such interesting slices of the country. Uh, you had a chapter on human smuggling. And so I'm just curious if you maybe talk about why why there was even human smuggling in the first place in Mozambique and you know how things have changed since you've written the book, if, if you know about that at all, and kind of how mixed migration affects the country. Sure. So um, mixed migration is basically when you get a, a flow of people, some of whom are, you know, refugees who are fleeing war, and then some of whom, like we see in Latin America or, you know, across the Mediterranean or in many other places in the world, um, have a different set of motivations or at least sort of a more ambiguous set of motivations, right? Things really are chaotic. Things really are violent. You know, there really is a drought or there really is a, a you know, terrible lack of opportunity uh, in the home country. And so, um, you know, when those streams of people become one, it's a really difficult and sort of tricky problem for the international system of organizations like the UN to figure out, okay, well, who gets the benefits of international asylum and refugee law? Um, who is the, who are the people who are going to sort of enter into this lottery that will send a group to Norway and send a group to Germany and send a group to the United States and you know give them refugee resettlement funds and all that. And who is who is just sort of had the bad luck of being born in a poor family in a poor country without much opportunity. Um, and the the reason that Mozambique because sort of has has been in the crosshairs of this phenomenon um, is really geographical. So you know as I explained before, Mozambique is you know in the sort of southeastern corner of africa and it is between if you will it's not the only country there between somalia and ethiopia um and actually the great lakes countries as well the democratic republic of the congo and burundi but it's between countries that have had a lot of difficulty of different kinds whether it's conflict or in the case of ethiopia drought and political repression um and South Africa, which is the biggest economy by a long shot on the continent. And so um, starting, it, it seemed, although I'm sure there was immigration, there was definitely immigration earlier, but it, it really sort of, there was an uptick 
2009-2010 of um, people trying to find a way to get from Kenya and Somalia, Somalis and Ethiopians largely, to get down from the Horn of Africa to South Africa. And Mozambique is just on the way. And so the Mozambican government has to figure out, well, how do we handle this? So I wrote about a guy named Liban Ali, um, who was one of the smugglers uh, and at a, for a time, one of the major smugglers in Mozambique, who would basically work with colleagues um, to collect people at the northern border and then deliver them somehow to either South Africa or Zimbabwe or some other sort of stop further on the way to wherever they want to go. Um, and, you know, again, it's an interesting kind of interview situation because you've got a guy who is engaged in an industry where there's a lot of exploitation, where some people are being outright trafficked and, you know, forced to do things against their will um, or certainly being lied to. Right. You know, you might be told, oh, you know, if you give me three thousand dollars, don't worry about it. This will get you all the way to South Africa when, in fact, you know, you'll get a third of the way there and now you're in some foreign place you've never been and they say you've got to call your family you need another fifteen hundred dollars so you know all of that happens right and i don't really have a good way of gauging or reporting out kind of how honest an actor this smuggler that i'm talking to is but um he still seemed to be someone who could uh just give me some insight really interesting insight about the shape of that economy um, in Mozambique. And he's someone who wanted to talk to me then, at least the way that he said it, um, because he had just decided to leave the smuggling industry because it was sort of too chaotic. He, he'd uh, spent some time in jail and was worried um, that something worse might happen to him. But so, yeah, I, I sort of used him as a way to understand this economy that moved people um, through Mozambique. And when I was in Mozambique in 2011, 2012, one of the main stops along the smuggling route was a big, the only refugee camp in Mozambique. And that was really interesting because um, the Mozambican government was in this position where hundreds and hundreds of guys would show up. Uh, and they do tend to be men in that, in that instance um, for a variety of reasons, but hundreds of guys would show up. And then in the middle of the night, trucks or somehow, you know, guys would pull up and those same hundreds or a different set of hundreds of men would disappear from the camp. And so if you're a refugee administrator trying to figure out, well, how much food do I need and who do I need to interview to evaluate their asylum claim and all that kind of thing? It's just this sort of chaotic scene. Um, and it, it's a really difficult one to resolve. You also talked about public health and uh, you specifically talked about cholera. And you asked this question, how is it that so many Mozambicans have come to believe NGOs and government workers are out to kill them? Uh, what are what are some of the answers there? How did how did that happen? Why are why are people afraid of those who are trying to help them? So that um, I'd say the mistrust of NGOs and mistrust of the health system for, you know, reasons of corruption and some of the other things we discussed earlier are, are pretty widespread. But the phenomenon of actually believing that you know, government employees or NGO public health workers are out to kill you it is pretty um, specific to cholera outbreaks. And, and basically the dynamic is this. Every year, um, 
there are there'll be some pattern during the rainy season of outbreaks of cholera in parts of northern Mozambique. And basically every year for the past 20 years, in response to, you know, seeing their neighbors die of diarrhea and vomiting and cholera is a very quick acting kind of scary disease. Um, you know, it can kill you within a few hours in some cases if you don't um, get access to hydration salts and things like that. But so, you know, every year people respond by saying, aha, you see those Red Cross Jeeps, you see that health center, you see the people who are handing out chlorine tablets to try to purify the wells. They're the ones who are spreading this disease. And there's a kind of superficial explanation for that response that you often get when you ask people about it, which is, oh, well, the word in Portuguese for chlorine is cloro, and the word for cholera in Portuguese is cholera. And so there's just this kind of semantic accident that leads people to be mistaken. And so when people are passing out cloro, they think that they're actually, you know, infecting places with cholera. But I always found that, you know, maybe it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's it's unconvincing, I think, in a broad way. Um, and when you when you start to talk to people, and I, I did a lot of the reporting for the chapter that focuses on this in uh, areas that had been um, sort of swept up in one of the worst outbreaks of cholera-related violence that we've seen, um, they seem to have still a just very, very deep mistrust of anybody who sort of comes there and acts like a benevolent, you know, outsider or powerful figure. And I think the dynamic um, is basically that, you know, for your whole life, right, you've lived in a rural area where everybody builds their own houses, basically using the materials that they can find at hand and farms their own fields and basically sort of you know, goes about their lives really with a degree of self-sufficiency that's hard for us to envision, right? Like nobody is bringing them, you know, to, there's no ER, there's no food stamps, there's not even a, you know, there's not a government office, there's not a police force, there's not an ambulance service. I mean, all of these sort of, there are no, you know, they're not really good roads, all the sort of basic building blocks that our economy runs on are absent from um, the sort of rural areas of Nampula where this has been most concentrated. And these are people who in living memory uh, witnessed some of the civil war that I described, right? And saw, I think in that case, in, in the areas where this is most common, tend to be sort of opposition areas. And so all year long you go about, or all your life you go about your life, you know, with very little outside support. And then one day, perhaps the first time or maybe the second time, that you um, have even heard of such a thing, um, your neighbors or people in neighboring towns, you start to hear rumors that people are beginning to vomit and uh, diarrhea continuously and are dying within the space of days and bodies are sort of littering the village. And you hear that and at the same time you start to see this massive coordinated outside response, right? SUVs drive up, White people get out, you know, the government health service shows up in force and gives everybody, you know, tarps and chlorine tablets and buckets and soap to wash their hands to halt the spread of the disease. And they try to, fit, you know, figure out a way to fix the wells and maybe, you know, deal with your latrine. 
And all of a sudden, you know, that all happens in your village within a couple days or your town within a couple days of this, you know, terribly scary kind of novel disease. Well, are you more likely to believe, oh, yeah, you know, here comes the cavalry after a lifetime of hardship. Here comes the cavalry for me and my family. Or maybe these outsiders who never showed any interest in me and now show up saying, oh, we're going to give you this and give you that and do this for you and do that for you and be careful how you do this. Maybe those are the people who are responsible for this terrible affliction. And I think that's the kind of um, worldview that that is honestly pretty rational under the circumstances. And and it seems to be common. Um, I should note one interesting sort of accident of history that I think plays into this is that you know, cholera is a disease from South Asia, and it's spread around the world now, but it hasn't been that long. And so in Mozambique, cholera has been endemic since the 70s, meaning the disease sort of, you know, has been able to bunker down and spread on its own anew when the conditions are right each year. And so it really is true when you go to these places and they say, our grandparents didn't have to do this, didn't deal with this. Our great grandparents didn't deal with this. Right. It really is true that, um, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, cholera just wasn't present there. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. Remember, it is part one of part two, and we will conclude in just a few weeks.